came out of the uh, blocks. That gun went off, and it was like a hundred meter dash to spun. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of the End Podcast where we like to talk about films and we like to talk about TV shows and comics and sometimes music and sometimes we just talk about feelings because we're, we're modern gentlemen. Now, usually this is where I'd say welcome on board to my regular co-host Tim. However, Tim's poorly. But fear not, dear listeners, it's a Joe episode. It's going to be silly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope I, I do a good job. Good, good. I hope I do a good job filling in for Tim. <laughs> well, we were supposed to be the three of us, but Tim uh, fell a little under the weather. And we decided uh, to uh, record anyway because we have a pretty full schedule, seeing as how it's the holidays and everything. It's a little harder yeah. to schedule. So we decided to... Uh, uh, <laughs> Power on without Tim, and hopefully we'll record an episode that Tim will be proud of, and he'll be able to laugh and and enjoy listening to. I never get that joy. I never get to listen to something mm-hmm. for the first time. Yeah, it's it's quite funny because when I edit them, sometimes I think God, this is a good episode, but nine times out of ten, you know, because when I'm editing, I'm purposefully taking out the bad bits or mm. the clumsy bits, or the stutters, yeah. or the word repetition, or the mm-hmm. ums and errs. <laughs> so by the nature of that, I'm focusing on all the shitty parts. And by the end of them, I'm like, oh, fucking hell, is this one even worth uploading? And then they're always <laughs> are, Joe. They're always yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know there was one you edited. You were dreading editing. You didn't think it was going to be good. And I listened to it, and I thought it was a very good episode. So there you go. That's because I'm yeah. good at editing. Yeah, <laughs> it was two and a half hours that one was, and I just I thought, God, I can't, I can't, I like, I even I felt the, the enormity of the task, and because I hear things now when we're actually taping little foil boys or idiosyncrasies of people, and it's almost like I have this mental ticker, you know, like a bouncer outside a nightclub checking how many people are coming in. And then yeah. I'm kind of like, nope, we're at capacity. Nobody else can. <laughs> That's it. No, yeah. That's... Well, well, except for maybe you, because you're hot. So you can go in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe's allowed to keep talking. Joe can talk. <laughs> Everybody else, <laughs> we're, we've got no space. <laughs> yeah. So how have you been? Uh this fine week well considering the eventualities of the last uh, month or so it's been pretty yeah. plain sailing so <laughs> joe had this <laughs> splendid idea that why don't we what what everybody says is die hard a christmas film it's not it's just a film set at christmas christmas mm-hmm. at christmas so joe said why don't we all choose one of her favourite films that's been set at Christmas that isn't really a Christmas film. My mind immediately went to Iron Man 3, but I've I've got a little bit of a of a superhero hangover from the events of the last couple of years. And <laughs> in actual fact, 
Last weekend, I rewatched all of the post-Endgame Marvel films. After doing that, did you have to schedule an appointment with your therapist after watching uh, those movies? Yeah, I did have a bit of a tough time thinking about it. Yeah, I you never put the two depressed. together. Man, yeah, you're probably feeling <laughs> depressed and down because you watched all those movies back yeah, to back. I just stayed in bed wanking all day. <laughs> <laughs> it was my body just going, what do we like doing and where do we like doing it? <laughs> How can we get as much distance between the two as possible? Yeah. Although, to be fair, we did... Um, when we did well, when I uploaded the shorts of us talking about how superheroes have sex and how mm-hmm. comic book sex work, the amount of I don't have blinds in that window, so I'm looking at after I finish my work, my schedule last week, and before it all went tito with the printering, I um I was really regimented, did a nice day's work, make some dinner, then edit a YouTube video, and then read some deadly class, and then go to bed and watch a film for this episode. Like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was winning. Life was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the amount, the amount of porno trailers that I had to watch to, you know, mm. to have the sort of video background for the mm-hmm. for the uploads, and the amount of like sexualized images for the thumbnail, and I just became completely numb to it. It was like I was doing uh, any thumbnail to any other video. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean because back in the uh... You're roughly the same age as me, so you remember the VHS days. <laughs> and yeah, so kids might not understand this, the younger, the younger folk. But uh, back in the day, we didn't have streaming. You couldn't get Pornhub or or YouPorn or whatever it's called, whatever sites people go on. Yeah. You'd have to actually go out to a video store and rent your pornography if you want to watch pornography. And I had a buddy who's a big porn fanatic. He like knew all the actresses' names, actors' names. Yeah. He was obsessed with porn. Like culturally, he was obsessed with the porn star culture. <laughs> and he knew this video store that was rent 10 for a buck each. And you had them for a week. So what we did is we went and rented 10 and we had two VCRs. So we were dubbing all these movies. And uh, my roommates and I, we had girlfriends and they'd show up and it'd be like 24-7 porn on the TV because <laughs> we're dubbing all these, uh, all these movies, right? <laughs> Oh, back in college, and there, and it was just like eating supper with porn on the TV, <laughs> breakfast porn on the TV. <laughs> anyway, yeah, back in the day before streaming well, days, that's how was... you had to do it. <laughs> in the advent of dial-up Wi-Fi that did all the screaming and swearing, like, and you'd get a line at a time of an image. So you'd click on it and it'd go across the top, across the, and then the next one, then you get a little bit at the top of the head, and then you find out what a forehead looks like. And there'd be at least 20 or 30 iterations of this loading up. And I'm just sitting there thinking, if we have to do it this way, can we start at the bottom? (laughs) (laughs) If we have to, can Uh... we just start at the bottom? Go from the middle and step out. Or or downloading videos. You'd have to, like, for 24 hours, right, to download a film. And you don't know what you're getting. So you download (laughs) it for 24 hours and you watch it. You're like, this is garbage. I had to wait 24 hours. Well, you'd load up, like, five songs on Audio Galaxy, which was kind of pre, maybe pre-Napster. Audio Galaxy. And you'd set them up. And because it was like a P2P sharing thing, 
you could get to 99% of the song and then the other person would just cancel the upload or the download ah. on their side. So yeah, it would take a day to download an album. It's outrageous. Yeah. It was out. It was crazy. Imagine if you're a kid now and you had to go back in time and you're used to your phone having everything instantly with yeah. and they had to go back and suffer through dial up. I think the suicide rate of those <laughs> they would all start committing suicide. <laughs> They'd be a lot healthier, mate, because none of them would be on fucking yeah. Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, because you had to go do something else while you're waiting, yeah. right? So... You'd have to go down to the train tracks where someone had heard there was some porn in a bush. And then <laughs> <laughs> it was like a, a rite of passage. Somebody would always hear at school about the new location for porn in a bush. It must have been yeah. some older kids that were taking it around and just mm-hmm. leaving it. And all the pages had separated. It was never a full magazine. But there was always consistently some porn in a bush somewhere locally. And then you took the step up to the section of the Little Woods catalogue. <laughs> and then there was then there was page three. I can't imagine it in today's day and age. A young, big breasticled lady can, on page three of all the tabloid newspapers. Did you have that in Canada, Joe? We had one that was called Allopolis. This <laughs> tabloid style newspaper. And it followed cops arrests at strip clubs and stuff very uh salacious kind of articles and a lot of shots of strippers and they talk about porn stars and stuff like a seedy underbelly like but geared towards the main populace right people that were you know and it was a pretty popular tabloid type magazine at the time right like a smutty national inquiry yeah exactly it wasn't quite porn so you didn't have to quite be 18 to buy it it kind of that middle ground but it was pretty salacious content so yeah (laughs) (laughs) but then like if you had a local girl in your neighborhood that became a porn star it might end up in this tabloid type yeah yeah because i remember there was a girl where we live she did pornography for a little while and this is before the internet and when everybody found out you know yeah. It spread like wildfire, right? You can't keep that to went, yourself, yeah. can you? you no, can't. once you know, once that got out, man, it was like like a wildfire, you know. Well, even yeah. in the in the tasteful nudes early era of um, of broadband, and because people don't realize, even twenty years ago, or people forget, on your phone you couldn't stream a YouTube video; it would be completely no. pixelated. It wasn't until like two thousand five, six. Oof, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. When Maybe, you could, yeah. What you wanted to look at or watch, you just click on it and it was there. 15 to 20 years ago, you had to wait for it to upload and then you were impatiently pressing play and then it would pixelate and then you're like, ah. They were feeding us technology that they just haven't worked out yet. Yeah, yeah. Mm. They don't understand. Before streaming was, like you said, you had to download everything. Mm. But now with the advent of, like, look at Netflix. started out as a mail call video rental. They actually offered it to Blockbuster first and Blockbuster refused it. Mm. But the whole thing about that is, though, with Blockbuster, they must have, they must have had a team of people future-proofing them. I mean, look at the amount of platforms that have appeared since Netflix. They couldn't have just made their own. Sometimes people are so stubborn because it's not their mm. idea. And we got rich doing this. We're going to show them. Yeah. We're going to show them that it's a fad. That mm. people, it'll last a year or two, maybe. Then mm. when you're the king at the top and mm. you get complacent, right? 
because yeah, you've yeah. been at the top for so long. <laughs> and then you get that young, ambitious <laughs> fuck coming around ready to <laughs> knock you down. You know, it's like, you, don't, you yeah. just take them for granted and you don't see it coming. And yeah. before you realize it, it's too late. The damage is done, right? Mm. It's like when I was locking myself in the, in the bathroom when I lived with my grandparents and they went, oh, don't worry, he'll grow out of it. Well, I showed them. <laughs> I showed them. <laughs> or I can actually show them. That would be weird. That's not what I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just going up to your grandma like this. I made sticky. <laughs> yeah. Doing a slap dance. Windmilling it in the middle of the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big boy now. <laughs> yeah, do you remember those adverts? I'm a big boy now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, right, so let's get on to what we're talking about then, Joe. Yeah, we, so, we went off track we... long enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So as we said, we are, we chose a film each, and I'm going to do Tim's choice at the end of the episode, um, where some of our favourite films that are set at Christmas but aren't necessarily Christmas films. My choice was released in 2002 by Chris and Paul Waits, Anglophiles that studied at Cambridge University. It was the third adaptation from Nick Hornby's novels, the first two being Fever Pitch and High Fidelity. The film was a play <laughs> on the Nirvana song about a girl, and it starred, it starred previous foppish rom-com, Darling, Hugh Grant, it gave the debut, big screen debut to Nicholas Holt, and it also had an emphatic and prolific performance from Tony Collette. Now, of course, if you haven't got it from all that, then what are you doing? Of course, it was 2002's About a Boy, and I love this film so much. And it's one of those that when I forget, it's not that I forget about it, when I've not seen it in a while, in my mind, it registers that I love the film. But then when I watch it, lying there on, on Monday night, watching it from start to finish, I was like, I can't believe how good this film is. The way that Hugh Grant plays this selfish, isolated man that doesn't work, and he has no commitment to anybody, all he wants to do is play snooker, watch some telly, drink a nice cold beer in the bath, and shag as many women as he can. And sounds sounds awfully familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching this, and the whole time I'm like, I think I know why Matt likes this movie. Yeah. It's like a, it's almost like an autobiography. <laughs> but he has to find his heart when a young man, played by Nicholas Holt, young Marcus, comes in his life and asks the question, does a man need to be an island? Or maybe sometimes it needs to be a series of islands that are all linked up together. The performance of Tony Collette in this is... If you haven't seen the film, which I'd be very surprised about, she plays a, a mother, a bit of a hippie, and she has quite distressing mental health episodes, which results in a suicide attempt. And the way that it puts Marcus, the little boy, that he's having to deal with being 
bullied at school because he has a hippie mum that sends him to school in like knitted like what like what what would you call this clothes like just like knitted sort of elaborate sort of multicolored jumpers and scarves and hats and he deals with that quite well and then he comes home to find his mum just pu- pu- puked up a bunch of pills and Hugh Grant's trying to shag one of his mum's friends and he's thrown into this situation and the unfamiliarity of it to him and he actually grasps the situation with both hands so it's like he knows how to be responsible he chooses not to because all he's trying to do is give a good impression when people talk about what Taika Waititi does in films the tragedy and the levity and I'm like not really because he's silly but his silliness generally tramples over any of the tragedy in any of Mm -hmm. his films like in Like in Ragnarok, mm-hmm. for example, I know we've got different opinions, but like when Odin dies compared to when Freya dies in the Dark World, you don't ever get the the gravity of Ragnarok because everybody's making silly jokes at the time. Like it's a fun film, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. and even the one with what was the one where he plays Hitler? Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit. I found that the the silly bits were fine, but the rest of it was just a little bit boring. I never got to grips with that film as much as other people did. But I feel that that film is the connoisseurish dream where you can reconcile the silliness with the tragic and boring elements of it. And I think people just like to... It's a bad habit to get into, to try and crash why people like films and try to... So, oh, it's just because, you know, you're, you're just being a bit pretentious because you just want to like a film like this. Like, people generally like it, they generally like it, but I do think <laughs> there's a connoisseurish edge about it. This is the perfect example of, it's a kind of conversational realism the comedy has, because you have believable characters put in unfamiliar situations and the way that they react to that. For example, when Marcus kills the duck, his mm-hmm. mum's given him this big, this massive, huge, tough as old boots loaf. And he gets tired of trying to pull in out chunks. And he just throws the whole thing in and he kills one of the ducks. Yeah. <laughs> and then Hugh Grant, making the best of the situation, goes over and he goes, oh, no, 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 the duck was already dead. He was just trying to sink it because it was upsetting yeah. the other children. <laughs> <laughs> it manages to hit those warm and almost cuddly comedy moments. But then it's laced with the tragedy. And I like the... It doesn't have a propensity at the end to tie everything up nicely. Sometimes there's problems and you're never going to be able to solve them. But what helps is, is having an, enough people around you that can, that can bring the best out of everybody. Yeah. They do address that at the end too, where the mother mm-hmm. and him have that serious conversation. I'm not attracted to you and I never will be, <laughs> but you have a relationship with my son but yeah, we'll yeah. never be something, so we're going to have to figure something out, right? And yeah, yeah. then you get the final yeah. scene, right? Where now that you see this, like, yeah. what do you call it? Like, modern family, yeah, as yeah. you would say, kind so of scenario. I like to, oh, what was the girl called? Was it Ellie, the kind of, the punky girl at school that he's taken yeah. a shine, that yeah. Marcus took a shine to? In the book, they bond over a, a love of Nirvana, and when they find out how Kurt Cobain tragically ended his own life, but Ellie 
Ellie's the only one, you know, that end scene. And I'm just looking at it going, well, you make sense and you make sense. And you make, so you're the son of the bloke that Hugh Grant's character is mm-hmm. going out. Like Hugh Grant's invited his lonely friend because he thinks, and then I just look at Ellie and go, do you not have fucking parents? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why are you here? <laughs> mm-hmm. It did seem a little out of place. I'll admit that. Because there was no leading up to why she would be there hanging out. Yeah, like, because Marcus doesn't even fancy her anymore. He's just accepted him as a friend. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, when he wants to do the band, the show, she's yeah. like, no, man, it's it's suicide. You're going to... Yeah. It's like, hell no, you know, like... And that moment was... <laughs> it wasn't forced, but it was pure theatricals, wasn't it? There's this through note of Marcus singing as his mum likes him singing. He goes and gets his mum and... She's going, well, he's a good singer, and why why else would he do it? He goes, you stupid fucking woman. He's not yeah. doing it because he likes it. He's doing it because you like it. And then the penny drops. Well, how do you know more about my son than I knew? And then she realises that actually, what's Hugh Grant's character called? Because I'm saying, uh, yeah, Will Freeman. So actually, he is a free man when you think about it. Will yeah. Freeman. So. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like a parent, right? When you're too close to something, yeah, you don't yeah, see yeah. the bigger picture, yeah. right? Because it's her son. She loves him. She thinks yeah. he's the star of her, of her life, right? <laughs> but Will is a guy that's c- coming from the outside. So he's looking yeah. at it from an outside perspective. And he's like, <laughs> you just don't get it. You just yeah. don't get it. You're sending the lamb to the slaughter, slaughter. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he comes on, the mum song is, uh, Roberta Flack's killing me softly, isn't it? Yeah. And he yeah. comes on with the guitar, and then Marcus is like, no, we're done, we're done. And then he just starts wailing out on the Keep guitar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Rachel Weiss's yeah. character. And it kind of echoes, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it knows when to play its hand with the humour. That's what I really yeah. like about it. It's really conscious in its efforts to... It doesn't undermine the tragedy that is in the film, it knows when to play its card. <clears throat> and one of my favourite moments in this, Joe, Marcus is in followed home um, by some bullies and they're throwing sweets at him. And he's like, bloody hell, Marcus, how yeah. often does this happen? He goes, well, most days. He goes, well, what are you going to do about it? And he goes, well, nothing really. Just make it worse. I'll put up with it. And he takes him shopping and he gets him these fancy new trainers, doesn't he? He takes yeah. him to the sketches <laughs> shop. And then the next scene you see is him in the pissed down rain, knocking on his mum's door, and he's big, <laughs> sopping, woolly socks. Woolly socks. Yeah. So she's like, why, why would anybody steal your shoes? She was like, well, because I have nice shoes. She goes, where did you ever get nice shoes from? She goes, um, Will got them, me. She goes, who's Will? Well, he's this man, and I go around to his house after school because I don't want to come home because I don't want to stress you out. Right, where is he? She ambushes him. He's no, he's not on a date, he's with his sister, with isn't his friend. he? Friend, yeah, 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 yeah with his friend, yeah. yeah. You got to get your life together, yeah. you got to do something. You can't just low, float through life doing nothing, yeah. you know. And yeah. one of my favorite lines in any films are like, We want you to be our baby's godfather, and he goes, What, me? And they went, Yeah, it will be perfect, you'll have some responsibility. He goes, Look, she'll probably never hear from me until her 18th birthday, and then all I'll do is take her out and get her pissed, and let's face it, probably try and shag her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Tony Collette's character 
Fiona ambushes him with this friend. And she goes, what the bloody hell have you been doing with my son after school? Why does he keep coming around your house? Hang on a bloody minute. What, do you, what are you trying to infer here? No, just piss off, will you? And then the, the manager comes over and says, look, you need to keep the noise down. Just bloody piss off, will you? And she sits down. How dare you tell us to piss off? You've obviously had some sort of impact on him. He clearly likes spending time with you, and now you're just going to walk away. Have you got a responsible bone in your body? And then the then the friend's like, I've been saying this about him for years. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some great scenes in this movie. Yeah, really, really good. Yeah. There's a point in a film between the halfway mark and the final third. So what that what, what would that make it? The um the fourth sixth of a film. Is it that point where you have your expectation? and you're waiting for everything you've invested in. But it's kind of like this little dark spot in the film. You've had all the setup, and it's not quite wrapping it up. And it's in that little bit of the film. If you can improve my experience in that little bot just after the middle point, and at that point, you find out if you love a film or not. Uh, yeah. And you were going to touch on uh, Rachel Weiss before I kind of oh, cut you off. Yeah. What, what were you going to say? Jesus Christ, she's beautiful, isn't she? Mm. Every actor in this has aged wonderful. Like yeah. they've all aged magnificent. Like they're all so like mm. still moves the the needle. Every actor in this mm. still moves the needle today. You know, like uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Brad Pitt turned the role down because he thought he was so implausibly sexy for a man that would have to lie about a kid to get women. <laughs> <laughs> no one's gonna believe it it's uh, he's not wrong <laughs> <laughs> i'd probably shag the guy myself and i'm not even gay oh, God, yeah just just for the accolade of having done it <laughs> yeah <laughs> for sure for sure <laughs> uh, go on then joe your choice all right so i was going through my list and i went with the long kiss good night uh, starring gina davis and samuel jackson Directed by Rennie Harlan, who actually was married to Gina Davis at the time, the director. She was married to the director, written by uh, Shane Black. So this is more or less a retelling of a classic La Femme Nikita. There was another American film where they tried to make an adaptation called Point of No Return with Bridget Fonda, which didn't have quite the same appeal as this one. The Long Kiss Goodnight. I hadn't watched this since maybe when it first came out. I may have seen it a few times. I remember back then that scene with the deer that launches this whole story Mm. into place is that accident when they're driving with the old man getting handsy, who's a little drunk coming back from the Christmas party. Yeah. 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 And then they hit the deer. And after watching this movie, because I come from the country, so we have tons of deer when you're driving at night, you got to watch it. And I always had this paranoid idea of hitting a deer and it coming through the windshield and thrashing around and like hitting yeah. me in the face with its antlers or its its hooves so every time i'm driving and i see a lot of deer in the fields when i'm driving i always get flashbacks to this movie and that scene where they have the uh, the car accident so basically this story takes place uh, gina davis lives in a small town or a semi-small town and she has amnesia she doesn't know who she is but she set up a life and in the story it says I was born on this date because she has no recollection. So 
in her mind, she says, I was born today pregnant. Was it two or three months pregnant? No memory, pregnant. So you could just imagine, like, just that whole scenario, the setup. You know, it goes through life. She meets a guy. Uh, she has a, a pretty boring, mundane job. Girl next door. You know, a pretty girl next door. And then this accident stirs up the flashback of her previous life. And we know the story, La Femme Nikita. It's an assassin. And I think La Femme Nikita, isn't it like a word that triggers her and she gets her memory back? I don't know, Joe. You've never watched La Femme Nikita? No, I've not. No, no. No. Get the fuck out of here. No, I well, now, no. well, I think we're going to have to do it because you have to see <laughs> that movie. That's a good movie. Yeah, so then that slowly she starts getting her memories back. This triggers something in her. She has a skill set. She's cooking. It's a silly scene. It's your typical Hollywood. Oh, I'm yeah. cutting carrots. Throws a tomato. Throws a knife at the tomato. Threw into a cupboard with her daughter and her boyfriend there. And like, oh my God. You know, like, it's definitely Keech. It's got a lot of cheesy moments, but it's got some great action sequences too. It's very of the time, isn't it? Uh, 1996, yes. I think it came yeah, out. Yeah, 96. Exactly. It's very, very of the time. And I'll tell you the thing that stood out to me. This was both ahead and of its time. The performance by Samuel L. Jackson. The way Samuel Jackson talks, even in this, it's not just the usual spiel. He he gives this kind of down and out hooker by crook, almost like a confidence man, but he's like a, a PI. The way he presents the character, you can tell there's a little bit of tragedy in his life as well, isn't there? Like with his daughter and, and what led him to become this person. Yeah, exactly. Like it wasn't just an archetype in the same way that Gina Davis plays Samantha, oh, well, Charlie, isn't it? That's what they call her. Yeah, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. Charlie, that she plays a double-faceted lead, so there's clear distinction between the two. And, and it's not just going through the, the set pieces and then having maybe a raunchy scene and then the next one that's like a down moment where she's trying to get her stuff together for the last action scene. However... There are some sequences in this which are kind of cringily of the time. Are you referring to the skating uh, where she's skating on the pond to go catch the car when they're chasing each other through town? No, no. They have time to trap on skates. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These guys are just driving around that lake (laughs) while she's putting on her skates. and yeah. I was thinking more of every single scene the husband was in. It was like it was in a Hallmark film. Hey, everybody, do you want to hear a joke? Oh, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't swear. God, shit. I do smoke and drink. Come on. It almost made him instantly dislikable. Come on. Come on, Charlie. Just get the kid and leave this fucking Muppet to himself. <laughs> yeah. He's more or less a throwaway character, so they didn't yeah. invest too much time casting him or... Yeah, but this cast then, uh, you got Gina Davis, Samuel Jackson, which Samuel Jackson, this is like uh, shortly after Pulp Fiction. This yeah, is one of it, the yeah. first movies he did after Pulp Fiction, He, which he did a series of like after Pulp Fiction, man, his career just skyrocketed to this day, propelling him to, I don't think he's had a lull since Pulp Fiction, has he? He hasn't had a no. dip very much, like he's been pretty and- consistent. If you look at, he's got, I bet he's got about 150 acting credits at least by now. At least, at least. Let's go see. 204. Uh, 204. 
with 12 wow. upcoming more projects. than nick cage more than nick cage <laughs> it's outrageous Jesus. isn't it it is outrageous because nick mm. cage has because when he was going through his bankruptcy he was taking every he was putting out a movie a month <laughs> do you know his his action comics whatever it wasn't is it number one is it action comics number one with the first is yeah. that the first Superman? yeah he had it yeah yeah that is now known as the Nicolas Cage Action Comics number one, and it has its own. It's almost like a variant. Oh, the one that he owns specifically. Yeah, yeah, that is now the because he had to sell all his comics, didn't he? As, mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. sad. But let's just say in these big sort of matrimony cases, in where you have a, an actor that I would argue, or even just like a typical like millionaire or something, that the spouse has already reaped the rewards by the lifestyle that they've had in the period that they were together. They've already got the benefits of that wealth to then be able to take half when that wealth with pre-existing them even marrying. That just stinks mm. to me. There needs to be an adjustment. It is. Yeah. Because speaking, let's do a little segue here. If we're speaking of divorce, speaking of divorce, let's get into the main actress of this movie, Gina Davis. I did a little digging, so I was like, yeah. hey, uh, you know? And I saw that she was married to the director, so I was like, oh, shit, that's interesting. So let's see. She's been married four or five, married and divorced four or five mm-hmm. times. Jeff Goldblum was, uh, she, when no she did The Fly, way. they were married. Yeah, she was married to Jeff Goldblum for a while. God, she was in that's... Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Yeah, she bangs Brad Pitt, actually, in Thelma and Louise. There's another... Uh... Susan Sarandon and Gina yeah. Davis. She doesn't seem to be married at the moment, but let's see. One, Is she two, taking three, applications? Five. five times, yeah. She was married and <laughs> divorced five times, so you can probably say that she's a well-off woman. Definitely back in the 90s, that was her mm. heyday for acting. Yeah, like mm. you said, Thelma mm. Louise, this movie. She She definitely did some interesting roles. A League and, of Their Own? Yeah, League of Their Own. That was another was big one. Enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was watching this, and, you know, it's like an action flick. And I think she does a pretty good job. And mm. you see the archetype of future, like the femme fatale, you know? Yeah. And yeah. dyes the hair, puts the heavy mascara. She looks amazing, though, didn't she, with that blonde hair? Or gelled back. I, I like God. the girl next door look, though. No, and I'm going to go no. back to that curly... Got my knees knocking, that did. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, back in the day when they were doing the X-Men films, mm. wouldn't she have been a perfect rogue? Like, let's say you could build a time machine and just get these actors and just, boop, get them from when they were younger and do, like, the dream team, right? It doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, you just, yeah, you just yeah. cherry-pick them from the time. She would play the mm. perfect rogue. Well, a lot of people are saying, uh, what's his name, from the bear. A lot of people are saying he should be the new Wolverine. Is he little, though? Yeah, he's fairly short. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Crazy yeah, hair yeah. and stuff. Yeah. What's yeah. his name, Joe? I don't know his real name. He did the American version of Shameless. That was his first. Uh, Jeremy uh, Allen White. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think he'd be a good. Um, he'd be good Wolverine because you can just put the weights on, can't you? It's easy enough. And done. he's already pretty fit. He's doing that wrestling movie, so he has. Iron Claw. So you know he can put on the weight. And, you know, maybe after doing this wrestling movie, they're going to see him more built and be like, dude, mm. this dude's going to be Wolverine. You know who I always thought would be a good Wolverine or Logan after watching The Punisher was uh, John Berthal. I thought his Punisher was more Wolverine than Punisher. 
with his with his and the way he yells all the time and stuff. It's yeah. more savage, you know. Yeah, I always thought he would because I think it's the Punisher's calmness that basically makes him so chilly, and he was more of a brutal, animalistic kind of character. Wasn't yeah, he? I saw more Wolverine in him than uh, Frank Castles. See, the best Punisher is still Ray Stevenson. Ray Stevenson, yeah. he was so good. The imposing yeah. physique, yeah. Perfect. Like he's what six mm. four, six, six, somewhere he, around there. Yeah, it was. He did two months firearms training with the former SAS guy. And he was that good at it. If this was 20 years ago, he'd be made for the Marines. Such a natural with firearms. Yeah. Yeah. And there's another actor in this film, the long kiss goodnight. The main villain there, the the main antagonist, the pretty boy they cast. Poor man. So <laughs> Every time I looked at him, he make these faces. I'm like, they just got the poor man's George Clooney. Like yes. the little looks he gives, the little lines, the you know, like trying to be that charming guy but not pulling it off. It's the kind of well, I'm just a bad guy. Do you know what I mean? Like what? So what's your reason for just being so ruthlessly horrid? Well, I'm the bad guy in Bad Boys, where it was just the guy that wore high-waisted pleated trousers with a black vest. Mr. Smooth, he's the bad guy. He's mean to everybody. You have David Moores in this, and he's always good. He thinks it's her boyfriend, her ex-lover, and she mistaking, knowing all these personal information about him, thinking it's because he's an ex-lover, but really he was her target before this tragic event happened to her to make her lose her memory. And you have her handler is Brian, Brian Cox. Oh, who is so always good. excellent. He's always great, excellent. The yeah. first scene he was in, because they had him from an angle, like, straight on. And I'm like, who the hell is that? you got to remember, this was in 1996. Mm. He's aged well as well. You look at him there and look at him now, and he almost looks the same age. Almost You see, same. he's yeah, yeah, almost, yeah. yeah. Then he went on to do X-Men 2, which was a fantastic movie. I thought he was great. Oh, yeah. I loved him. Yeah, he was great. He played Striker. Striker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. A fairly solid cast here. So you get some good performances, right? Yeah, so, it was actually. Oh, who's David Morse? What do I know David Morse from? Uh, he did that film with uh, Bjork. Uh, uh, he's, he does a lot of small roles like this, yeah. but always Her, very. Like house. Yeah. He was in House for Green Mile, he was in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very solid uh, supporting actor. He's the only actor to date to play both Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I am still to date the only person to have slept on both sides of my bed. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's cheesy. The daughter comes into play. There's a bomb that seems that they put into the truck. Of course, we'll blame it on the Muslims. Oh, yeah. And then the truck, like, driving through walls with this bomb attached to it, and you're like, hmm. (laughs) You think you'd be a little more careful with the truck driving around and smashing through things and driving off bridges, and, you know, there's a bomb in it. Anyway, you know, it's it's your typical Hollywood uh, Mm. trash film, like, at times. And it works out in the end. The cabin in the Swiss Alps or something with the helicopter panning out at the end with the family, the happy family. You know, it's got the cheesiness to it and everything. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah, it's Shane Black's good at this sort of stuff, though, isn't he? Yeah. You know what you get from him, and, he, and there is a level of proficiency that you expect. Like, I've really worn to Iron Man 3, 
since I, I didn't like it at all when I saw it at the cinema. I thought it was a bit slow and there wasn't enough Iron Man in it. And it was a bit of an anticlimax after the Avengers film. But now I do have quite a quite a soft spot for it. All the Lethal Weapon films as well. He did the Lethal Weapon? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see the action sequences and they have that very Lethal Weapon-ish, like mm. snapping necks and, you know. Oh, he did the Nice Guys as well. You wrote the oh, nice that's guys. A good one. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, that's a that was one. a really good film. Yeah, the previous <laughs> film about a boy. Hi, the film High Fidelity was inspired by the novel. Nick Hornby did a series of novels in the nineties. Uh, Fever Pitch was the first one that was picked up, and then there was High Fidelity and uh, About a Boy. So the movies were based off his novel High Fidelity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shit, that's how yeah. I love that. I love the movie and the series, so I yeah. think I should probably go get that book and read it then. He really struck something in the 90s where he was... Captured the essence, the moment of the time, kind exactly. of. Exactly, yeah, that's perfectly yeah. put. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Who is the guy that um, did Train Spotting in um, Shallow Grave? with The writer, Danny Boyle. It was in that third Brit invasion of the era when the music was had its tendrils into the American into pop the... charts. And then Nick Hornby was doing this very sort of communal garden British way of writing. Then you had Danny Boyle that was doing all that kind of stuff. I still can't believe Danny Boyle hasn't done a James Bond film. Should we get on to Tim's choice then? Tim's choice. Are are you going to go into character method? Like, are you going to become Tim or? My homage might turn into parody. And I don't think that's fair. Oh, because you don't like that, because you're a bit, <laughs> you <laughs> criticize uh, Watiti quite a bit, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not saying I would intentionally turn him into parody, yeah. but what I'm saying is if I did it poorly, which I expect to do, then. Yeah. Uh, right, okay, yeah. Let's, yeah. let's get into, let's get into <laughs> Tim's choice. Yeah. Now, this was from 1999. And I think we've all picked films around that era. So I think that probably tells us that the turn of the century was very Christmassy. It was the last <laughs> film by an tourist director that had flooded our screens for decades upon decades with behemoth blockbusters and insightful filmmaking. This was based on the 1926 novel a dream story by Arthur Schmeitzer, who was a close friend of Stefan Freund. The autorist director bought the rights to the film in 1968, and it was originally meant following up his debut, which was a satirical comedy, and it was written for Woody Allen. There were various attempts to get the film started, but... Dear listeners, in 1999, Stanley Kubrick gave us Eyes Wide Shut, a rather raunchy and seductive tale starring the married couple of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Imagine, after hearing you say that it was originally, the idea was to get Woody Allen. Could Mm. you imagine that movie? How maybe horrible it would have become compared to this? What was his first film? I'm not the biggest Woody Allen fan, man, to be honest. I'm not. I don't get it at yeah. all. Dr. Strangelove. Dr. Strangelove, Joe. It wasn't Woody Allen, but it was Stanley Kubrick. Satirical take on 
on war. Yeah, it's undoubtedly Stanley Kubrick is a legend. Without a doubt, he did one of my favorite, all-time favorite films. If I had to make a top 10 list, it's there every time, is Full Metal Jacket. That, for me, is a top 10. I love it. The performances in that, the contrast from the boot camp to actually ending up in Vietnam. I mean, I love that movie. That's my favorite Kubrick movie, hands down. So I went in with an affinity to his work, despite Mm -hmm. maybe the controversies surrounding a lot of his work or himself as a person. Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, they were married, performing as husband and wife. Yeah. Uh, this garnered a lot of attention, especially seeing as how their marriage fell apart shortly after this mm. movie was released. And I think you could see the tension. And that I think that tension translated onto film. Especially that scene where she tells him, laughs at him, and his simplicity, the mean spirit. I don't know. I've been in relationships where alcohol and your relationship as a couple are two things that do not mix well. And I think that scene captured it perfectly where they get high after the party and they're a little drunk and the conversation turns very nasty and how you take that knife and you twist it. Sometimes you can't even control it, right? This movie definitely, definitely without a doubt captures those intricate aspects of relationships that sometimes, you know, you, you fall prey to willingly or unknowingly how you can take the most intimate moments and things you know of a person and weaponize them against you because they know every little aspect of your life, right? And and they know exactly what to hit you with to really affect you even more. And this movie definitely captures that. You feel it. And I've watched this several times and this was the first time I've watched it in I don't know how many years. I enjoy it. A lot of people didn't enjoy this movie, but I, I yeah, did enjoy it, was, it. It wasn't taken very well at the time. They saw it as salacious bump. I've always had an affinity to this film. I really found it a daring and complex film. But I always watched it at face value. For anyone that doesn't know, Tom Cruise finds himself in a bit of a pickle. He's a doctor. Seems like he has a fragile relationship with his wife. They're very flirtatious, knowingly so, but they both seem to accept that that's a part of their relationship feels like there is that almost daring toxicity to it. Like it's a conscious toxicity. Tom Cruise goes for a bit of a walkabout one night and he finds himself in, by hook or by crook, in this sort of two percenter sex orgy. But he gets found out and then he's trying to unravel the complexities there afterwards. I like the straightforward storytelling of it prior to this watch the man that was out of his depth trying to link pieces together where nothing is as it seems however finding out that it was based on the 1926 dream story there is a lot of complexities in this that pose more questions about how much of it was actually reality and how much of it at that point where they get high and then he leaves his wife in bed. How much of it is just a dream? And when you look at a lot of the... There's a very conscious mise-en-scene, the way that they arrange the scenes later in the film compared to in the, the initial moments. 
intentional errors. For example, the way he finds out about this sex party is he ends up meeting an old school friend at a jazz club, the Sonada Cafe. The bloke gets this password to gain entry and he says, look, I'm going to follow you there, so you might as well just tell me and, and get a bit of distance between the two. Now, when he goes from there to Rainbow Fashion, which is a costume centre, isn't it? But it's not like fancy yeah. dress, but it's for, you know, masquerade balls and stuff. Yeah. Now, when you look at Rainbow Fashion, you have the neon reflections of the Sonada Cafe across the road from it in the windows, but yet he gets a taxi there. So it implies the disorder of dreams. He tries to retrace his steps and he drives back to the country manor type place, the stately yeah. home where the sex party happened. On the approach, he goes over the same bridge in the same direction. But when he gets to the house, one side he comes from east, one side, the other time he comes from west. As opposed to when he goes from the rover or the cab, it's two different. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then there is the models in the costume shop constantly change from edit to edit. The actual displays, the mannequins, mm. they change. They have like a fully formed face or they don't have a face. And there's a lot of links throughout the film that when he, he befriends this prostitute walking the streets, trying to figure out what the hell's going on with his marriage and mm-hmm. why it's, why do they put themselves through this? And then this lady of the night starts following him and she says, do you want to come inside with me? And he's kind of like, why in here? And she's like, yeah, in here. And he goes... In that sort of, over, it's almost like a child. He's seen charming in films, but he's just replicating what charming is. Yeah. Tom Cruise feels like everything, it's not his version of charm. It's what he's seen other people be charming as, if you know what I mean. Like yeah. it's always that little extra. And at the end of the film, in the conclusion, when they're taking the little girl Christmas shopping. Shopping. She picks up a tiger, I think, as she walks past the tiger, and it's the same tiger that was on the prostitute's bed. Dead. And the Barbie that she picks up at the end, she, the little girl was wearing that costume in the opening scenes. It's a very cleverly woven together film that has a lot more layers than I first uh, really. And it's a lot like when we did Predator, that I've always known I've loved Predator. But then if I could do this for every film I watched, I'd enjoy films even more than I do. But when you're actually doing conscious research for something, the level of conscious thought that goes into putting these things together, especially for someone like Kubrick, even if you're going past the intentional threads and meaning and hidden meaning of the film, there's still this surrealist honesty, this contradiction of exception and accepting. Everything's very provocative. Did you notice there was... Okay, so in this sex party, Tom Cruise gets found out, right? Yeah, right from the beginning. One of his friends later on in the film says, you need to drop this. This is a much bigger fucking thing that you think. Your level of inquiry just out of curiosity, perverse curiosity, isn't worth what you're getting yourself into. And he says, well, how did, how did you find me out? Was it I didn't know the second password? He goes, no, no, there was no second password. But it was long before that. People turn up in limousines, you turned up in a taxi. He was fucked from the second he got there. Yeah. And the and the pianist disappears, and the prostitute that he befriends. There's a lady that says, stop. 
I'll take the burden or whatever it is. And then they march yeah. this prostitute off and he's trying to find, because they're all in masks. So he doesn't know for sure that it's her, but he's trying to find out where she's disappeared to and where the pianist has disappeared to. What has he actually discovered? I can tell you where all the penises disappeared to. <laughs> Inside the vaginas at the party. <laughs> uh, do you know what? I loved, I loved how brashly sexual it all was, right? Yeah. At the party, you mean? Yeah. Or just in general, the tone throughout the entire... It does that contradiction between like the voluntary action of the people at the parties, but then the way that it's almost weaponized between... the Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, but then that's mm -hmm. the marriage is seen as the sacrosanct relationship, but yet they're the people that are, that are weaponized in sexuality. Whereas exactly. in the obnoxious party where it's all free, which is sort of shunned and looked down upon, that is when it is that sort of unbridled sexuality and everyone's just getting on with it. Everyone's getting their brains yeah. fucked up. And there's another yeah. canny scene actually when, and this is why I started to think. There's many parts of this, the characterizations that, especially with Nicole Kidman, she's sort of very sort of swaying and rhythmically jaunty, the way that she's talking and heightened and over the top. It's like a crazy person sitting in the corner, hugging their knees and then just saying like, almost like rhyming couplets one after the other, when that was almost the way she, she communicated. And did you notice that when, whenever there was confusion or Tom Cruise's character was under pressure there was a lot more blue light in the scenes everything looked like it was being shot at dusk or at break of dawn daytime didn't seem to exist in the in film. this movie yeah almost yeah. except for that final scene right yeah Pretty much. yeah 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 and they're almost cancerously flirtatious with other people to the point of no return, right? Like almost to the point where they lose themselves in the little game they're playing. It proposed really good questions and drew lines of what is the acceptable proposition between nudity and sexuality. The way that the edits were used that were quite abrupt. There's a moment where it goes from a Nicole Kidman's in a very, well, she's at home in the film, so she's in very, what would you call the, the night clothes that she was wearing? Revealing uh, night clothes. Uh, you cut from that scene, and then it goes to a gorgeous girl that's getting a, an examination at the GP's office with Tom Cruise. So you're looking at him in a weaponized sexuality to go into something that's the most unsexual thing you can, but it's with a beautiful woman. And then there's a quick edit to, an old man, and then another quick edit that goes to a child. And it's almost holding a mirror up to you as the viewer to say, you were looking at Nicole Kidman in her night clothes, which was in a private moment inside the film, but we in our minds sexualized that. And then Tom Cruise is performing a... a... Now you got me fucking yeah. with the brain part too. Uh... <laughs> Not a examination. Uh, examination. He's, exam yes. he's examining wow. this, this wow. beautiful, absolutely beautiful woman. And it's the viewer. You don't have the sterile atmosphere of a doctor's room knowing that this woman might, she's having a cancer check or whatever it might be on mm -hmm. her boobs. But as a viewer, you've just been taken from the weaponized sexuality of Nicole Kidman to a beautiful woman being examined, stripped to the waist. So as the viewer, you're almost 
provocated into sexualizing that but then the quick edits take you to an old man and you're like well what about this and then the quick edits take you to another little boy I was almost in conversation with the filmers that it was going through like some of it was for me some of it was for the characters and some of it was just for the film mm -hmm. yeah uh, when I was watching it, the gloves are off, right? And you see a lot of those kind of scenes. It's hard to explain. Why are you processing it this way? Like in all these scenes, they break it right before. Would they have done it or wouldn't they have? But they never answer that question, right? Because there's always a little event that comes in. And when uh, Tom Cruise and, and Nicole Kidman are fighting in the room, he gets the phone call of uh, the friend who dies. So it puts an end to that conversation where they never get a full resolve to that situation. Yeah. Uh, when he goes into the prostitute's house, he gets a phone call and he's like, yeah. you have to go, don't you? It puts an end to that situation. So you don't have the final result. There's all these scenes that kind of get cut. That's like almost like the interpretation of the dream again. It's all incomplete. Yeah. The dreams yeah. don't, you don't get a conclusion or a happy or a climax. A conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the Which whole Tom thing... never does. The whole yeah. film, I don't think yeah. he ever does. <laughs> no, he doesn't. Does it's quite interesting that you say that because one of the psychological inspections that this film was based upon is something called the shadow. And also the psychological trope of masks and what we are behind the mask. Mm -hmm. But the shadow is basically where we keep all our true afflictions and personality traits whereas the front of house is kind of the restricted held back version of ourselves and yeah that ties in really really well with the source material that it was based upon and i i think the title of the movie is well explained at the end with that little conversation that last little conversation between tom cruise and nicole kidman eyes yeah. wide shut where we are completely conscious of a situation but choose to be ignorant towards it. Mm, and mm. I think that embodies this whole thing where they're going through this and Nicole Kimmons like, let's just be grateful that we have what we have. Yeah. And and you see, he's like, what do we do? Nothing. I love you. Mm. I love the choice of scenes in this movie as well. Did this take place in Greenwich Village, Soho, where where did this take place in New York? Do you know? It didn't. It was all made in uh, Pinewood Studios in England. Oh, was it? But the movie itself was supposed to have taken place in New York, though, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. I love the settings, like the little cafe. Yeah, really the jazz nice. bar was cool yeah. with the lighting. And it's Christmas time, so you get to play off like with the Christmas lights and stuff, mm. blurred in the background, which adds a nice little touch to a lot of the scenes. Let's just round it up then, Joe, and say on each of the films, as we say on this podcast, you can't 7 out of 10 watch or read something. You either read it or you don't. So we'll start with the beginning. Would you recommend About a Boy? Definitely. Yeah, Definitely a too. good flick. Would you recommend Love Kiss Goodnight? If it's playing on TV for free, like, and you're doing stuff, mm. leave it on and watch it in the background for sure. Otherwise, mm. don't, don't go out of your way to go get it because mm. you might be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And finally, Eyes Wide Shut. For me, definitely it's a watch. Back in the day when I used to dub VHS all the time, I dubbed this and watched it multiple times when it first came out uh, as a mm. rental. This is a type of movie that is ageless, right? Regardless. Mm. Yeah, I'd recommend it too. I enjoyed it. I think it's, once you dig down into it, it's one of those where it might not be the best film, but it's a really good one to talk about. So yeah, I'd recommend it. I just think because it works on a straightforward 
sort of noir mystery level. And it also works when you hold it up for more inspection as well. So yeah, I yeah. really liked it. I like digging into it a bit deeper and finding out, do you think it was a dream, Joe? Or do you think, uh, or do you I think don't know. it There's was magical so... realism in the film? There's so many ways you can interpret it, right? Is it, yeah. you know how sometimes you have a night of debauchery and the details are so yeah, yeah, yeah. incoherent that you make a story out of it? Is it that? Because mm, this all stems mm. from from that night out, that first party where I'm a little drunk and he's drinking. Yeah, and then, yeah. or sometimes you go through a tumultuous time in your life where when you look back in hindsight, a lot of the details get muddled together. Like yeah, where yeah, events, yeah. you don't re recall events in the proper orders or you're like, oh yeah, that happened before this. And, you know, because your mind is somewhere else. So, you know, the mind plays tricks on you. So it could be a dream. It could be real. And you just don't remember. Because like they say, when they investigate crimes, eyewitness is the most unreliable yeah, piece is, of yeah. evidence you can have. Yeah, and yeah. I think it might play into that as well, where yeah. your recollection of things, two people won't see the same this the uh, thing the same thing in the same same yeah. light right so i think it plays it plays on so many aspects like you touched on like is it a dream is it just dress distraught state of mind the whole time after the reveal of nicole kidman saying he could have had me that night if he wanted me and mm. from that point on it, it, it creates all these discombobulating aspects in his mind that he's trying to grasp and and then getting thrown into like the prostitutes coming at him and this and, and it's just too much for for his ape brain to handle right so yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we've talked about apophenia as well quite a lot in the recent podcast the human instinct to see patterns in things yeah yeah exactly so yeah. you know and it always comes back to that scene right and it's in blue his wife cheating on him and he always comes back to that when mm. he has his quiet moments where he doesn't have distractions mm. when he's able to stop and reflect he could just be justifying his own actions as well. Yeah. Creating a narrative to justify his actions. Exactly. Yeah. Gets so open to interpretation. Depending on who you are in your life experiences, you'll interpret this movie differently based on yeah. what you've experienced in your past. And it's so open-ended that it's it speaks to anyone and everyone. Right? relationships are messy man and this movie definitely <laughs> definitely definitely shows you that relationships are not easy and clean mm -hmm. and yeah we'll wrap it up there joe bye everyone thanks for listening it was a blast always a blast coming here and chatting about whatever we chat about <laughs> <laughs> going off on tangents and everything so i hope you guys enjoyed the episode and uh you know, tune back in for more later on as uh, yeah. things drop on Spotify, YouTube, uh, wherever. Uh, Apple uh, Pod, what was it? Well, Apple. it's quite funny, yeah. Apple Podcasts and also Google. Yeah. I managed to find my login to Google the other day and we've had one episode listened to for the lifetime <laughs> of the podcast. I'm like, yeah, that's why I remember now why I, that's why I lost the password. But uh, <laughs> by the time this is edited and uploaded, you'll be able to find me on Joe and Johnny's YouTube channel, which will have been yesterday when this is uploaded for the final part of Deadly part Class. Um, yeah, I had a, a wonderful time going through that one of Johnny's favourites. And I would say one of my favourites now as well. So go and check that out. You go on YouTube and search for graphic vandalism and it's the Sunday Spank 
Deadly Class Part 4. And if you're only hearing about it for the first time, then go, what's wrong with you? Go in, try and listen to the first seven and a half hours that we've done on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's uh, 50 some odd issues. So yeah, we had a lot to go through. But if you're just generally a fan of Joe from his appearances here, go and check out Graphic Vandalism anyway. There's a lot of cool content on there. Talk about much of the same stuff that we do. Comics and films and music and TV programs. And that only leaves me part of your regular co-hosting team. I just want to say get well, Tim, if uh, you're not well already. I don't think any man should have things coming out of both ends unless it's a sex party. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be going in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, they're not going to stay there, are they? It's a, 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 a <laughs> In and out, in and out. Yeah, I go into this thing, go in and out, yeah. <laughs> quite one of Stanley Kubrick's other films, a bit of the old in out, in out. <laughs> uh... So that leaves me... Matt, I just want to say thank you very much for listening to the end. And indeed, if you had to the end, you can find us on all your favorite listening locations. And we have an Instagram and a Twitter, which is the end underscore pod. And we have a YouTube channel, the end one shots. And there'll be links in the descriptions below if you want to find us on any of those. Merry Christmas and happy holidays, everyone.